Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hi, uh, this is Sarah Kibbing. I'm a postdoctoral associate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and I'm speaking today with Professor Daniel Simberloff, the Gore Hunger Professor of Environmental Science at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And uh, in full disclosure for this interview, uh, Dan was my PhD advisor, and the topic that we are speaking about today, uh, invasivery and invasive species, is a topic that Dan and I have collaborated collaborated on um, in the past and, and hopefully in the future for talking about um, some of these policy ideas for dealing with invasive species. And so just to get us started today, Dan, could you just tell us a little bit about the invasivore movement? Sure. Um, almost whenever an introduced species becomes invasive and um, damaging in a big story, someone suggests, hey, we can solve the problem by eating it and thereby drive it to extinction, at least limit its numbers. And it happens over and over again. Probably the most famous recent case was the uh, nutria that's eating away <laughs> at Louisiana. And the state of Louisiana sponsored a, um, a very high-profile contest with famous chefs from New Orleans to concoct uh, recipes for Nutria. Another good example is kudzu. There are at least four cookbooks on, just on recipes for kudzu. And um, all of these, um, these schemes uh, suggest that somehow you can help control the species by eating it. Now there's an uh, uh, organization with a website, eattheinvaders.org, that sort of collates all the information on various invaders and ideas for how you can eat them, how you can prepare them for, for eating them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, I mean, one of the reasons we're here today is, is, like you said, it's sort of all over the place now, especially maybe in the last uh, nine to 12 months, um, where this idea of eating invaders has really uh, taken hold with the media and in the general public. And so you mentioned the cookbooks. Um, there's been novels by Jackson Landers, um, Eating Invasive Species, which chronicled his adventures hunting invasive species and, and preparing them. There's been lots of news articles in local local papers and, and national papers, the New York Times, the Huffington Post, the Washington Post. And um, so it seems like people are really eager to embrace this idea. And as, as someone who's watched this happen with many invasive species through time, why do you think the public is so enthralled or the media is so enthralled with this idea of eating invasives as being the solution for dealing with them? I guess because it's simple and it, it purports to give a pretty simple, straightforward answer to um, a, a difficult problem. It suggests uh, an, an, an easy fix. It's also pretty catchy. We're always interested in people eating weird things. <laughs> There's whole television shows about it, right? That's and right. So it, it, it seems sort of a, a natural 
Yeah. And and sort of on that main main um, argument of it being simple or that main line, sort of the main argument supporting the invasive or movement is the fact that humans are either entirely responsible or partially responsible for the decimation or the extinction of a lot of native populations. So people all know about the passenger pigeon or the American bison, the cod. Maybe humans were also in part responsible for species like the woolly mammoth going extinct. And and so at first blush that that idea of hey we've done we've done this before we've eaten things to extinction why can't we do it with these species does seem really simple and, and really logical but but is it a good justification and and for the likely success of these programs? Um, no, not really. Um, it's interesting you you did not name a single invasive species that was driven <laughs> to the threshold of extinction by uh, by overeating and overharvest. Um, and many of the species that are threatened by uh, by overharvest are um, they reproduce very slowly, and they're they're threatened sometimes for other reasons. And so, uh, towards the end, harvest can can contribute to uh, to driving them completely extinct. But that's not the case with invasive species. They're numerous. Um, they typically have high reproductive rates. And there's not a single example in, in which one has been successfully controlled uh, or even uh, slightly controlled simply by, by humans eating it. Yeah. Um, I think uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to, to talk with you today and, and put this uh, podcast together was um, just recently this radio essay by the NPR commentator Bonnie Wolf that was on Weekend Edition last Saturday, which was August 17th, 2014. And and at the end of her, her commentary, Bonnie sort of casually threw out this this following statement where, where she said, there are some critics of this tactic of eating invasive species. They worry that this will create demand. And um, I know from personal experience that I think you're one of the leading critics with a a lot of background information and a lot of knowledge on the issue of invasive species who um, would like to give voice to some of these criticisms. And so so part of the point of this podcast is to give more than five seconds of airtime to to what these criticisms are and why they might actually be detrimental for, for going into one of these eating invasive art campaigns. And, and so to start with, um, I'd just like to talk about the critique that she brought up very casually, I thought, in her interview, which is creating demand for invasive species, which seems like that should be a good thing. But can you give some examples of when that's bad or, or, or sort of more fundamentally why creating demand for an invasive species would be, would well, be detrimental? Well, demand generates a market, and so a market is created, um, there will be pressure to maintain the market and even spread the market because people profit from it. Um, And sometimes that could even lead to spreading uh, invasive species to new areas simply to to generate an even bigger market. And, you know, there are lots of examples where that's that's already backfired. Um, You know, one major one in the United States is the the wide distribution of... uh, rainbow trout and brook trout uh, out of their native ranges. And uh, uh, often they were then spread by individuals wanting to have have even more rainbow trout and brook trout in other areas where 
um, you know, state wildlife agencies had not introduced them. So the upshot today is that we have five species on the U.S. endangered species list that are threatened partly or largely by uh, hybridization with rainbow trout. And we have bull trout that's, that's threatened by uh, hybridization with, with brook trout. Um, so there's an example. Another recent example is uh, the, uh, the long delay in, in the attempt to uh, manage strawberry guava uh, in, in Hawaii, a, a, a very damaging plant that's um, threatening a number of native plants in, on several of the Hawaiian islands. And uh, uh, unfortunately, the, uh, you know, the fruit tastes good, at least to some people. And so they generated tremendous opposition to state plans to uh, cut back on it or, or maybe even to eradicate it, including the biocontrol project. It probably delayed the advent of the uh, biological control project by about three years. So I could give other examples, but there are lots of cases where this has really backfired. Yeah, which is which is interesting because you would think demand would help help decrease it, but we just don't see that being the case with non-native species. Well, we don't species. see enough demand. Of course, if everyone started eating rainbow trout or strawberry guava, uh, you know, sustained pressure year after year after year might have an impact, but there are not species where uh, that's happened. There are also many, many examples where you know, introduced species have been spread to, to to new areas because people wanted to eat them, either as a market commodity or just to eat them themselves. This northern snakehead has been introduced in several places in the United States uh, because people wanted either to create a market or wanted to be able to catch them and eat them themselves. It's a delicacy. It's a carnivorous fish that's uh, a very threatening invader. Um, Pigs and goats on islands worldwide were left by sailors um, so that they'd have food when, <laughs> when they stopped at these islands. And they've, they've, they've caused hundreds, literally hundreds of extinctions of uh, native plants and of a few animals. Um, so, you know, been extremely dangerous. The red swamp crayfish from Louisiana is a, a huge problem in Europe and it's been spread by people who like to catch them, and it's created a market, especially in um, southern Europe, in Italy, France, and, and Spain. Yeah. I, I could give other examples. Yeah, no, those many are... Case, many cases like this. Oh, great. Plants, and... same thing's happened with, with plants. Um, water lettuce in Florida uh, has been spread to um, new areas by people who like to eat water lettuce, yet it's a, a serious invader. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that a lot of these uh, news stories on invasive species um, deal with with these fish like uh, Asian Asian carp and snakehead fish or blue catfish, which are sort of prime examples of promoting further invasion, um, but are somehow the most tangible that people want to eat or they can see on their plate. So it's right there that there could be a lot of um, detrimental ramifications to eating invaders, but it doesn't get as much news press as it should. There's not a single shred of evidence for any of those species, blue catfish, any of these Asian carp, they're actually two main species, or the snakehead that it slowed down the invasion in any way at all. Asian carp are harvested in great numbers and even shipped to China. Right. The invasion 
just keeps spreading. Um, and, and another um, risk of an invasive war movement with species that also deals with creating a market uh, for these non-natives um, is the adoption of the non-native species into a local culture. And I, th- I think this one is sort of really hard to predict when that's going to happen or how it's going to happen. But could you talk a little bit more about what that means? And again, maybe give us some examples where non-native species are now uh, part of a culture. Well, there are lots of examples where non-native species are parts of cultures, and uh, some of them are as, as food. But I already mentioned one, the two of them, actually. Wild, uh, well, strawberry guava in, in Hawaii. You know, there's the, the, the petition that was actually endorsed by the um, county government of the island, big island of Hawaii, referred to it as our Hawaii strawberry guava. An Asian, <laughs> it's an Asian plant that was introduced in fairly recent times to Hawaii. But wild boar in Hawaii are another very good example. They, um, they were, uh, there were actually two in, in, introductions of pigs into Hawaii. The native Hawaiians, uh, you know, brought them almost a thousand years ago. They carried them with them when they, when they colonized Hawaii, and then, um, uh, you know, Western colonists brought European wild boar, and the wild boar especially are are extremely damaging. They cause um, erosion. They, uh, they 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 specialize on on uh, plants that have tuberous roots, and they 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 endanger them even. They're just and they also um, create uh, you know pools of water where the non-native mosquitoes breed that are one of the main factors threatening many of the Hawaiian bird species, native bird species, with extinction. And yet they're, uh, the hunting and eating of wild boar in Hawaii is, uh, is viewed as a, a, a part of the culture of the native Hawaiians. They've been doing it for a, a century. And so there's tremendous controversy whenever um, the Hawaiian government or an, uh, a non-governmental organization like the Nature Conservancy attempts to eliminate or even limit war in Hawaii. But, you know, there are just many, many examples for introduced species that aren't, that aren't food where they become cultural icons. Eucalyptus in California is an obvious example. Every attempt to remove eucalyptus leads to a, uh, a, a response by people that say, say they've grown up with them, they're part of California culture, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so I, I think these are some serious critiques um, of this movement, but but there are some benefits as well, um, one of which is just increasing public awareness. And, you know, every time the the media gets hold of an eating carp in Chicago event or eating snake uh, snakehead in, in DC or eating lionfish in New York it it does get press and so I, I, I doubt that um, honestly I really? doubt that that's a real benefit it's often said to be a benefit but um, to use another metaphor I think that's a red herring <laughs> I think that that everyone knows about invasive species now. And people know that, that Asian carp are an issue. It's been headline news. President Obama has even spoken about it. Um, the lionfish 
Good God. I, it, it's, you know, just because of how dramatic it is and the fact that it eats so many native fish, it's been on lots of television shows. So I don't really think that there's any evidence that these, um, you know, these short, catchy articles about how, hey, we can eat them really increases sensitivity to the general problem of invasion or to the specific problem caused by the species that are going to be eaten. I've seen no substantial study of, of this issue of whether it really increases the public awareness or the awareness of policymakers to the issue, and I'm very, very skeptical. It might have been true 30 years ago, but nowadays everyone knows that invasions are one of the great global changes occurring, especially in the United States. The week doesn't go by when you don't see an article, even in local newspapers, about some invasive species or others. So, so do you think that in, there there are any benefits to invasivery and, and to uh, promoting one of these campaigns, or, or do you think there are some species that well, the benefits are the you know people that are, are making money yeah. <laughs> by charging you know twenty dollars for a fillet of lionfish? There's there's a big benefit there, but if you're asking, is there really an environmental benefit? Is there a benefit in terms of seriously managing the invasion problem, um, I, I, I don't, don't see it. Uh, uh, it. It's interesting that I can't name a single invasive species where harvest for food ha- has really been shown to be limiting it in any way. When, when I can see two or three cases of that sort, maybe I'll change my mind. I, I think it's certainly possible that um, very, very sustained uh, spearfishing of, of lionfish, for example, on individual reefs might maintain those reefs uh, uh, as all the others around them are, uh, the fish are, are, native fish are removed. But even there, it would have to be done very carefully, probably by a, a trained team to avoid uh, damage to the native fish or to the reef itself, and it would probably cost quite a bit because it would have to be done you know, week after week after after week. So mm-hmm. I suppose it's, it, it's it's possible and they could sell those. You know, maybe that would help maintain the, that would that would help offset the cost of having such a, a program. But I, I think it will be very difficult to um, to for uh, for invasivery itself really to make a, a helpful contribution. Yeah. Well, thanks for for those thoughts and and sharing some information on that. Um, I just want to end with, um, I know that you have uh, actually dined on invasive species before, and I wonder if you could uh, tell us what you've eaten and and what your your overall feeling of it is. I've eaten several. To to return to lionfish, it tastes good. I I have eaten it, there's no doubt. I've eaten northern snakehead in Asia, and it, it has bones, <laughs> but but it, it, it's quite good. I, I liked it a lot. Um, I've eaten several things made with kudzu flour, and I once had kudzu jelly. Uh, they were all pretty insipid, but they they weren't bad. I I I I, I hope that I haven't. I mean, my message sort of is depressing about invasivity because it says it's not useful and it, it's probably harmful. But I don't mean to leave the impression that nothing can be done about invasions. There are, are many, many 
useful ways to deal with invasions. And there are several technologies that are um, time-tested. There are ongoing improvements in all of these. Uh, there are occasional bright ideas that help a lot. Uh, uh, invasivity isn't one of them. And you know, I could cite dozens and dozens of cases in which uh, invasive species have even been extinguished, totally eradicated from an area. So there are things that can be done. Yeah. It's just that invasivity is not really likely to be a big help. So, so that's our next goal is to, to have an NPR commentator uh, quote you on some of these exciting and innovative new technologies that have actually successfully controlled or eradicated invasive populations from different areas. I'll stay by my phone. All right. Well, we'll be calling you soon. Can't wait. All right. Thanks so much for your time, Thanks Dan. Bye-bye.